This is Unfilter. Episode 376 for March 14th, 2022. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the People's History Podcast, episode 376. And here I am putting together an episode I hoped I'd never have to make. So today on the show, I want to talk about what has led us to this conflict in Ukraine. I've been sitting back and watching the situation, seeing people sort out what's going on. And I think I've identified a few areas where we're still lacking full transparency and background on this conflict. So I want to talk about how we got here, the war hawks that led us to this. I want to name names. Then I want to give you a couple of examples of the propaganda campaign currently underway and end all of this with a few reasons why I think the winner in this Ukraine conflict will be China. It will not be Russia. It will not be Ukraine. And it will definitely not be the United States. It will, in fact, be China. So we'll make the case for that today. I, I, uh, I've had a hard time making this episode, and I hate coming on the show and starting the show with with me dumping on you about this stuff. But um, Unfilter was on the air in 2014 when the U.S. led a coup that the front runners of that coup were neo-Nazis or Nazis, actual descendants of actual Nazis. That's not propaganda. That's history. The Nazis actually had a big role in Ukraine. And they were the individuals that Western powers hired to do the killing for the aspects of the overthrow that needed a sniper or needed a politician dead. And then those Nazis became generals. And uh, I was on the air when that was happening. And we covered we covered the coup. We covered Victoria Newland's leaked call. And we also covered the invasion of Crimea. So uh, I hate to be this guy, but I would honestly recommend you go look at the archives of Unfilter if you'd like to get the real-time analysis back when this was happening. And I think if you played that back and you combined it with the last episode, episode 375, I think you'd understand why I'm so frustrated. I think you'd understand why this is so hard to watch. And I want to give you my, I want to put all the rest of my biases out there by playing a clip for you. Uh, This is my take and my personal bias on the current state of the conflict in Ukraine. And it lines up pretty nicely with Colonel Douglas McGregor's analysis of the situation. No, I think they're just surrounding the Ukrainian forces and they are annihilating them. And this is inevitable. Uh, And Mr. Zelensky, I think, is postponing the inevitable in the hopes that we are going to rescue him and we are not coming. President Biden has made that very clear. You think the end is in sight? Well, the end, the end of this phase is still a a few days away. First five days, uh, Russian forces, I think, frankly, were too gentle. Uh, They've now corrected that. So I would say another 10 days, this should be completely over. But the question is, 
what is it that Zelensky is going to do? The Russians have made it very clear what they want is a neutral Ukraine. This could have ended days ago if he accepted that. And then they can adjust the borders. But the eastern part of Ukraine is firmly in Russian hands. But again, the Russians are not seizing territory. They're destroying Ukrainian forces. That's their focus. Colonel, it sounds like you don't approve of Zelensky's stand. Oh, I think Zelensky is a puppet. Uh, and he is putting huge numbers of his own population at unnecessary risk. And uh, quite frankly, most of what comes out of Ukraine is debunked as lies within 24 to 48 hours. The notions well, of taking and retaking airfields, all of this is nonsense. It hasn't happened. Is not a, a hero when he's standing up for himself and his own <laughs> people? You don't think he's a hero? No, I, I do not. I don't see anything heroic about the man. And I think the most heroic thing that he can do right now is to come to terms with reality. Neutralize Ukraine. <clears throat> this is not a bad thing. A neutral Ukraine would be good for us as well as for Russia. It would create the buffer that, frankly, both sides want. But he's, I think, being told to hang on and, and try to drag this out, which is tragic for the people that have to live through this. And he's being armed. He's being armed by Western nations, by the truckloads. We're giving them guns, even though there's zero hope they could actually fight. I mean, this would be like Ohio declaring war against the United States government. Right. I mean, we could choose to bleed them to death or we could just destroy them in an afternoon. And by arming them and the citizens, every man and child that wants a gun can have one right now. All these Western nations are arming Ukraine, even though most of them are against their own population having arms. Any man or child that wants one can get a gun and they can fight until every Ukrainian is dead and the West is happy to let them do it. You see, because... This is the end game. This is the end game. And if you don't understand why, then you probably need to go into a couple of links that I'll have in the show notes for you. I'm going to have two at the very, very top. Both are videos, long, but I highly recommend them. They are extremely educational, and they will help you tie what is happening right now all the way back to Bush Sr. Every single president from Bush Sr. and key influential politicians right and left politicians in the United States government have been building towards this since Bush Sr. was in office. That intro clip I played was Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden in 1997, saying that the only thing that would provoke a vigorous and hostile Russian response would be the expansion of NATO. In fact, when you dig through Ukraine's history since about 97, you'll find Joe Biden's name is on much of that history. When Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, Ukraine was his domain. He was in charge of Ukrainian policy. You've also undoubtedly heard about how his family got rich from that arrangement. In fact, if there was a singular person that all of our meddling could be pinned on, it would be Joe Biden. If you listen to the full transcript of Victoria Newland's call, which the BBC has a transcript of it. If you do not want to listen, you can just search for the words. The BBC has the transcript still online. You can see Victoria Newland, who worked for the State Department at the time, who still works for the State Department today with Joe Biden in office now. Same people are back in control. You can hear her on that call planning the new Ukrainian government. And you can hear them talking about how Joe Biden's going to wrap it all up. Joe Biden's in charge of it. I want to play that clip again from 1997, where a very coherent and articulate Joe Biden 
was outline the very obvious issue that would be coming down the pipeline by expanding NATO, which he supported. Make no mistake, he was in favor of it. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. So that's 97 at the Atlantic Council of the U.S. in Washington, D.C., June 20th, 1997. You can go find old clips of it on C-SPAN. They knew it would be an issue. Also, just a little bit later in that talk in 1997, Biden outlines how this kind of behavior, expansion of NATO, would push Russia to China and Iran. Which is exactly what is happening right now. China and Russia are working on a deal to trade goods in China's currency. It's happening right now. Now, back in 97, it wasn't a viable option for Russia, and they knew it. They knew it. But the problem is things move slow. And we push this into a time when China is a viable option. But here's Biden warning of what Russia would have to do if NATO got right up on their border. Our conversation was gone off, which was repeated with Lebed. They talked about they don't want this NATO expansion. They know it's not in their security interest and on and on. And said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, ha ha ha. It's a joke then, you know, turning to China. What a joke in 97. As far as Joe Biden was concerned, you know, Bill Clinton was president and they were on the fast track to already interfering with Ukraine. Which led to a coup in 2004, backed by the West, started by Bill Clinton continued by Bush. Here's Joe, though, laughing about how Russia would have to turn to China and what a joke that would be. Not such a joke anymore, is it, Joe? Under security interests and on and on and said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, uh, good luck. And if, if that doesn't work, try Iran. Um, and uh, I'm so, so funny. Serious. I said that to them and these not a joke. And, and, and they know, I knew, they knew, everybody knows that that is not an option. And everybody knows, every one of those leaders acknowledges and needs, and they resent it. But they need, they need to look west. And the question is, well, this is designed to completely shut them out. Come on, and man. Our com- so, we fast forward a little bit in time. And again, the links that I'll have at the very top, I'm going to have a lot of links this week. I really want you guys to understand the context here because right now this is a regional conflict and it may end that way. It may just become the new quagmire, but a couple of missteps and this turns into a hot war between nuclear powers real quick. And if it gets even close to that serious, the U S's role in this must be held to account. There's already so many deaths on the line. It already should be, but this just isn't being discussed. So we're going to fast forward because we got to move on. I mean, I could literally drag you through every single president since Bush Sr., how they've been positioning this, but we're going to move forward to 2016. 
You know, a lot of people like to think that Trump doesn't have any dirty hands in this. They like to think that Trump was the no war president. And uh, technically, I suppose that is true in some regard. But Trump is absolutely complicit in this. Perhaps he was pressured. I don't know. That's what some say. But Trump was the one that decided to arm the eastern Ukrainians with drones. That was one of the last moves that really pushed this thing over the line. That terrified Russia. Now, this clip is Lindsey Graham and John McCain back in 2016 preparing the eastern Ukrainians for a proxy war with Russia. And they're just blatant about it. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. Now, to get an idea of the characters that they're dealing with, and John McCain's about to speak here, there are actual grandchildren of Nazis in this room with them. I'm not even talking like, you know, the hick Nazi, uh, you know, white supremacist that the media likes to pretend are all over the South. I'm talking about an actual Nazi related to actual Nazis that are in the same room as two major U.S. senators. That's the people they were in bed with. I believe you will win. I am convinced you will win, and we will do everything we can to provide you with what you need to win. Except for actual boots on the ground. Yeah, give it a good clap. Give it. A, you can find uh, that video online. It's getting pulled down off of YouTube. However, that was that was 2016 preparing for 2017. Um, and before Trump, you know, I really got to give. I shouldn't skip over Obama. I mean, there's so much to go through here. Especially, it really kicks off with Clinton. Then Obama gets in office, and that's when I realized that the Democrat Party was the party of war. Because Obama went into Syria, Obama went into Libya, and they were war hungry. I mean, we all remember the famous moment when Gaddafi was pulled out onto the streets, sodomized with a pole on camera, and then murdered the leader of the country. I'm sure he was an asshole. was murdered after being sodomized, and Hillary was delighted by the news. Right, so, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, We came... We saw, he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. <laughs> That's the same person that was in charge of the State Department when we went into Syria. That's the same person that was in charge of the State Department when we started backing the Eastern Ukrainians with weapons, right? And then the Obama administration handed that little project off to the Trump administration, and they took it to the next level. And each step of the way, they have been building a new Afghanistan for Russia. Even though we just got out, they're building a brand new Afghanistan to try to get Russia stuck in a quagmire. And Adam Schiff kind of even gave the playbook away in an interview before the first soldier moved in to Ukraine. Before Russia invaded, Adam Schiff was interviewed talking about how we got to fight Russia over there so we don't have to fight it over here. 
And he makes it clear that they know exactly where this is going. And of course, you just said that Russia has the firepower to do it. But if there is a full scale invasion, do you feel that Ukraine is prepared to defend itself? Or just how bad could this get? Uh, it could get very bad. I mean, we could see many, many thousands of casualties, uh, both uh, Ukrainian military and civilians, but Russian military uh, body bags going back home to, to the Russian state. Uh, so it could get very ugly. Is Ukraine prepared? Um, they're prepared, but they're really overmatched. Uh, and I think uh, if Russia goes forward with a, you know, a, a full effort to take over the whole country, um, they can do so in probably pretty rapid order. Uh, the question is, how do they keep it? And there is where I think it gets very long and very bloody uh, with a lot of body bags going back to Russia. But don't worry, Adam Schiff and his ilk are willing to fight until the very last Ukrainian is dead. Don't you worry about it. And this is something we've done before. So it's not even like this is some wild conspiracy. This has literally been a previous strategy of the United States government. There are conflicting reports out of Afghanistan. Some saying that Soviet forces now are in complete control of all major towns and highways. Others saying that heavy fighting continues in key areas of the country, especially within a hundred mile radius of Kabul. Afghan rebels claim control of two towns in Langman province just 50 miles from Kabul. That report is from January 7th, 1980, as we were uh, happy to get Russia pulled into a quagmire that eventually led to their collapse. You see, we're just walking quite the fine line here, aren't we? Ambassador, Poland's offer to send MiG-29 fighter jets to a U.S. base in Germany as part of a plan to bolster Ukraine's air defense is being dismissed by the Pentagon as not tenable. U.S. officials say the plan is high risk and could further escalate the war. Let's bring in South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Senator, Let's wait there. So this is a hell of a story and a great example of how haphazard this whole thing has been run by the Biden administration. So this is cute. Poland wants some new planes. Let's break this down, because what you find out is Poland wants some new planes. They're going to give their old planes to Ukraine. The whole thing's a great deal for them, even though nobody in Ukraine probably knows how to fly those planes, as if you can just give any random fighter jet to any random pilot and they can just fly it. But the whole idea was Poland gets brand new planes. But Russia said, you know, come on, like if they shoot us down in your planes, we know you gave them those planes. That's your fault. So the Pentagon overruled the Biden administration. That's what happened here. The amazing thing is, is that Kamala was already planned to go over to Poland and make a big show about giving them new planes. And she had to replan and re-message on the fly. And it was a horrible embarrassment for her. And that whole thing happened because the Pentagon overruled the administration. Listen to the report. Ambassador, Poland's offer to send MiG-29 fighter jets to a U.S. base in Germany as part of a plan to bolster Ukraine's air defense is being dismissed by the Pentagon as not tenable. U.S. officials say the plan is high risk and could further escalate the war. Let's now, the issue there was, though, is that they'd already told Poland, the Biden administration had already gave Poland a verbal confirmation. Then the Pentagon contacts Poland, says, no, we're not doing that. Poland then contacts the White House. The White House gives them like this non-determinate answer and Kamala's on her way. So it's awkward. And we are so close. We're playing these games of semantics. If we give this person these guns and this person these planes, this country, these planes, and they give it to the Ukrainians and it's not us, even though they're all American weapons. As if the Russians are stupid. As if Putin wouldn't see right through this. This has been. 
an absolute ridiculous boondoggle. And it's one of many. And on top of that, there has been such an obvious war of propaganda. And I think a part of it is because a lot of Internet propaganda um, farms were in Ukraine and probably still are in Ukraine. And now they've been turned on to make the case for Ukraine. And I'm not saying that I don't feel for the people there. I have listeners in Ukraine. I've talked to them. It's a horrible situation what's happening. And I hold the West just as accountable as I hold Putin. That's the reality of it. And we're doing this BS cover now. And it's for everything that comes out of there, from what buildings get bombed to the topic of biolabs and chemical weapons. It's Syria all over again. This really kicked off this week from actual testimony from Undersecretary Victoria Newland, who said during a question by Rubio, yeah, there's bioresearch labs there. And then the United States government had to go into massive damage control. I'll play that testimony for you and some of the damage control. Well, um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities. Now you hear how careful she's being. She's playing the Fauci move here. He asked if they have bioweapons. She is really careful to say they have bioresearch facilities. You see, it's not like it's just the, it's the same thing of, well, it's not gain of function. We were doing additional function research, not gain of function research. See, what you're asking me about, Senator, is gain of function. No, no, we do not support or finance gain of function research under any conditions. Um, addition research, addition of function research. Yeah, that's fine. No, we our 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 legal team has determined that's totally safe and fine. That's the word game they're playing here. Well, we don't have bio research weapons over there, but we do have bio research labs that are designed to defend us from weapons. So they're defensive labs that we're creating weapons so we can defend ourselves in. Um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So they're totally safe. They're just bio research labs. But we're also very concerned that the Russians might control of them because that would be very dangerous because they're completely safe facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda the groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or uh, or attack. in This is Rubio desperately trying to cover for Newland. That's why I left this in here. He realizes what she just admitted. Side of Ukraine. Is there any doubt in your mind that 100 percent it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. And then she concluded by saying, Fuck the EU. So it's amazing that she can say we have these bioresearch labs. 
We are extremely concerned that the Russians might get access to them. Uh, and it's classic Russian technique. That's always a good one to blame the other for what you're doing when they are actually doing it. And then, of course, the United States government went into damage control. All of their friendly outlets in the media let them spin their web. And, of course, they were happy to go with that. They love it when a U.S. official tells them something because nobody gets fired for printing what the U.S. official told you. And, of course, the Pentagon spokeshole Kirby went out there to let everybody know it's coup. Can you Don't worry. basically explain to us what type of relationship, if any, there was between the Pentagon and the Ukrainian side on any biological labs? Uh, when was the last cooperation? And what do you have to say about these Russian accusations? The Russian accusations uh, are absurd. They're laughable. And, uh, you know, in the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. I wish they wouldn't even ask them about the Russian accusations because they never have to actually address the question. They can just focus on the Russian stuff and pretend like it's so outrageous. But then China came out and said, no, 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 we also think there's bioresearch labs that need to be investigated. We'd like to actually call on the UN Council to look into this. Recently, the U.S. biological labs in Ukraine have indeed attracted much attention. According to reports, in these facilities, a large quantity of dangerous viruses are stored. Russia has found during its military operations that the U.S. uses these facilities to conduct military plans. According to data released by the U.S., it has 26 labs in Ukraine. The U.S. has 336 labs in 30 countries under its control. China has been trying to draw attention to this for a while. Um, so, yes, the U.S. did say, OK, we have 26 labs. They're not like weapons labs, though. They're defense research labs so we can defend ourselves with preemptive defense. And China has actually been trying to get the U.N. to do something about this for a bit. And so, of course, they're happy to throw in on this moment to try to draw attention to it. And now China has been labeled as assisting Russia with their propaganda, of course. So so the U.S. had to respond to it in a new way. Now that China, Russia, and I think maybe even India were all calling for investigations into this, they had to pivot a little bit. So CIA officer, I mean, Fox News correspondent Jennifer Griffin says, well, okay, yeah, okay, these are biolabs. We have a lot of them, but we have them because we took them over from Russia. And Sean, in terms of Ukraine's biolabs, which have come under scrutiny tonight, those are Soviet-era biolabs that the U.S. has been engaged since 2005 in trying to help Ukraine convert the research facilities safely. In Uzbekistan, for instance, the United States eliminated nearly 12 tons of weaponized anthrax from an island in the Aral Sea in 2001. Here's a statement from the Pentagon. Wait a minute. They've been working with them since 2005. Then she says 2001. But either way, 2005 would be 17 years ago. Really? And it's ironic that they, she says 2005, since the first attempt to overthrow the Ukrainian government by the West was in 2004. Quote, on a daily basis, Russia propagates either either directly through state-run media outlets or through the use of surrogates, disinformation aimed at BTRPs, the U.S. Biothreat Reduction Program's laboratory, and capacity-building efforts in former Soviet Union countries. You know, so you can actually find the agreement between the Ukrainian government and the United States government about these biolabs. I read the PDF. 
And there's all these provisions in there about secrecy and about how they're not allowed to tell even the UN what they're actually doing. So I don't know how much you can trust any of this. But there's also a bit of irony here with Jennifer Griffin uh, criticizing Russia for saying on a daily basis, propagating false information through media outlets when she's literally reading a Pentagon statement through a media outlet, doing the same exact thing that they accuse them of. It's amazing. Um, but I want to go back to that Newland um, testimony because she talked in there about those bio labs, but that got all the attention by most people. There's something else she mentioned in there, and that is that they're protecting you from misinformation by working with big tech to suppress information. You know, the State Department's Global Engagement Center, which you all helped us stand up and supported, uh, works 24-7 to, with other allies and partners, not just in Europe, but around the world, to um, bring to light Russian disinformation campaigns and, and who is pushing them. We also work with the tech companies to try to take down false stories, and uh, we are working very assiduously on, on all of that now. We're also working to try to get truth into Russia in the context of a complete freeze on um, on independent news going, going there. And... Uh, uh, that is that is an issue that is of paramount concern to all of us. So independent news is a paramount concern to them as long as it's independent news that's getting into Russia. And somehow by all these sanctions and all of these companies implying their own sanctions and suppressing information like the BBC and CNN pulling out. That by that very testimony sounds like it's a bad thing because now the population doesn't have access to the other side of the story, which is only going to propagate the government's misinformation and make them more complicit. And then you combine that with the crippling sanctions that are directly hurting the people since the oligarchs already prepared for it. And that's just going to make them more angry at the West. So you're suppressing information and you're making decisions that are going to fuck the livelihoods of the average people. I mean, the rubles down, what, 40 percent or something, maybe more now. So their entire life savings have been wiped out. Who would you hate for that? They're not going to hate Putin. Just like you wouldn't hate Biden for going to war if Russia wanted to put missiles on Mexico's border or if China wanted to install missiles along the China, along the Canada U S border, if they wanted to put missile installations in Vancouver and Toronto, I think the United States would have a problem with that. The missile installations that are going in now along Russia's border allow for missiles that can reach Moscow in eight minutes. How does Putin's government deal with a threat like that? Eight minutes to decide how you're going to respond. Maybe five minutes by the time you even know it's in the air, if you're lucky. So five minutes to determine the fate of the entire world when you see a missile coming in. Five minutes. How do you think the United States would respond to that? And how justified would they be? Putin also can't fail here. Because his relationship with China depends on him succeeding. If this devolves into a hot war, or if he's defeated and his outcome is not achieved, he damages his relationship with China. And he needs that more than ever now. The Russian economy has been crushed. The people have been crushed. And that has been the goal. And they must share in the pain of these sanctions. And... While we're going after these, uh, their super yachts and their vacation homes and worth hundreds of millions of dollars, we're also going to make it harder for them to buy high-end products manufactured in our country. We're banning the export of luxury, luxury goods to Russia. 
They're also the latest steps we're taking, but uh, they're not the last steps we're going to take. And as I said, at the beginning of all these steps, we're going to hit Putin harder because the United States and our closest allies and partners are acting in unison. The totality of our sanctions and export controls is crushing the Russian economy. The long-term effects of this are going to be great for China. But we are weaponizing the U.S. dollar and the SWIFT payment system at a time when the West is extremely economically weak. Of course, Russia is even weaker now. But all of this is connected, and it has a, re- it has a real impact here at home. And this is all happening, the spending for this war and the weapons, it's all happening with the backdrop of 40-year high inflation. Big inflation report out from the government today. The consumer price index up 7.9% over the last year. That is a pace not seen since January 1982, 40 years ago. Driving that surge? Prices for gas, food, and housing. Food prices alone rose 1% last month. That's the largest monthly increase since April 2020. Comes, of course, on the back of rising energy costs, which have spiked further since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. And I probably don't have to tell you that the energy cost sort of sets the base price for everything. Anything that has to be transported or moved around or shipped, it's all going to get more expensive. And then, of course, Russia being a large oil producer also is going to make this a little more tricky, isn't it? And while all of this is happening, it's going to weaken the U.S. dollar because it creates a requirement that countries like China and Russia and India start trading their goods in something besides the U.S. dollar. That's how they did it before. That's why the U.S. has enjoyed very special status when it comes to how we manipulate our financial markets. Because the U.S. dollar is in demand, my friend. Everybody needs dollars if they want to buy oil. And you're not just buying one dollar, right? You're going to buy a lot of dollars at once. And if you're buying your oil in U.S. dollars, well, why not trade your wheat? Maybe your neon, maybe your general goods. Why not do it all in U.S. dollars since you're already buying baskets of dollars anyways to make this possible? And we are directly incentivizing these countries to switch to something else, to create less demand for U.S. dollars while we've just got done printing $6 trillion. So we've created a lot of money, both at the top, lots of money at the top into assets, into bonds, into banks. You've seen assets across the board skyrocket. From real estate to metals to bitcoins to stocks. In fact, fun little exercise, my friends. If you go to something like tradingview.com and you overlay the printing of U.S. money with the S&P 500, there's a one-for-one correlation. As the printing went up, the stock market goes up. One-to-one. So you understand when the money slows down or there becomes too much supply, either way, it's going to upset the apple cart. And so you've seen the market react because the Fed has been threatening that they'd had to raise in, um, interest rates, essentially raise the cost to get access to money. That's caused a chilling effect on the economy, along with supply chain issues that this show told you would happen along with the economic ramifications of the lockdowns that this show told you would happen, all of that is now in play. All of that's landed. At the same time, 
we're fucking with the energy market. And we're telling people they're going to have to suck it up. In fact, even before the first soldier went into Ukraine, you had Democratic representatives out in the media telling you, if you want to fight for freedom, you're going to have to take the you're going to have to take that pain in the wallet. Right. You're going to. We're going to fight Russia at the gas. But pump. also, the thing that you hear President Biden saying is Americans need to prepare, be, be prepared for if this comes to our shores right. and it comes to to our shores in the effect of higher gas prices. When we already are seeing an eight year high, we're already seeing inflation at 40 year highs. So the president is also trying to tell Americans if we have to get involved here, the cost of freedom may be in your wallets at the gas tank. <laughs> I love that. The cost of freedom may be in your wallet. Ah. <sighs> And, you know, it's funny because when I don't do the show, I just rant and rave to family. They hate it. And I told them they're going to do this. I told them this. And if you look at the again, you can go to tradingview.com. Look at the price of oil. It's been going up since last January and it's been going up at a parabolic rate since August. Just nuts. It had a little correction in November and uh, late November. And then since December, just uh, it's gone up like 70 percent. I mean, 80 percent. It's just been wild. Wild. By the way, one of the things that generally leads to a recession is commodities just going nuts on pricing. Just one of the usual three things that leads to a recession. That's all. Um, so to spin this as the conflict in Ukraine created this is completely disingenuous. It is partially responsible, but the U.S. economy is very large and it takes a long time for some of these problems to be absorbed. That's why the lockdowns from two years ago are still screwing with the supply chain. It takes a long time for this stuff to get sorted out in an economy this size, especially one that is this large. So it is obvious and disingenuous to say that this is Putin's price hike, but that hasn't stopped Biden from hitting the, just that message as hard as he could, as often as he can. They have been out there saying it. And, I, you know, sometimes... Sometimes somebody calls on them. Calls it them sounds on. like you guys are blaming Putin for the increase in gas prices recently, but weren't gas prices going up anyway because of post-pandemic supply chain issues? Well, I, I think there's no question that, as we have seen, and outside analysts have conveyed this as well. Once we have hired. The increase in the anticipated continued increase, which is, I think, what some of your colleagues were asking about, that that is a, a direct result of uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And also there was an anticipation of that uh, that was that uh, was uh, was factored in as gas prices have gone up. Priced in, as they say, she says, oh, it was just it was Putin being priced in. Uh, it's not it's not all the other pressures on inflation. No, no. Because of the rescue plan, four million more jobs are created. Unemployment is 2% lower than it would have been and had we failed to ask. And it didn't cause the inflation. No, nobody said it did, but he's got to throw that in there, of course. And he's kind of getting sick of you saying it does. I'm sick of this stuff. We have to talk about it because the American people think the reason for inflation is government spending more money. Simply not true. Well, it's... It's kind of funny, right, because it's clearly partially responsible. In fact, the Fed wouldn't be toying with interest rates and buying assets with quantitative easing if government spending and the way government uses money weren't directly involved with how hot the economy is or is not. And if you are naive to think 
that making money practically free for large institutions to get access to doesn't lead to bubbles forming all over the place, then I don't think you understand how this whole thing works. And that's what Biden is counting on. He's hoping he can gaslight you into thinking this whole thing is just because everybody's concerned about Ukraine. Make no mistake, the current spike in gas prices is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin. That's an, again, they love they love the word game. Largely responsible if you look at the last couple of weeks. Yes, that would be true. It has nothing to do with the American Rescue Plan. Again, defending the American Rescue Plan because the word has gotten out to the public that the government has been crazy with the credit card. That's what's happening here. And the Democrats know the Republicans are coming after them in the midterms on this issue. And he's trying to get ahead of it as fast and as efficiently as he can. Back to Wall Street. Wall Street estimated that the and the San Francisco Reserve, Federal Reserve said analyzed it, said the rescue plan contributed only 0.3 percent to inflation. You know what? We asked the fox to check on the hen house and the fox says all things are in order. Plan. Back to Wall Street. Wall Street estimated that the and the San Francisco Reserve, Federal Reserve said analyzed it, said the rescue plan contributed only 0.3 percent to inflation. giving every single American that qualified 1400 bucks or more. You don't think maybe that raised the price of some goods. You don't think that dramatically increasing the supply of money at the money spigot at the top from the federal reserve that was printing at unbelievable rates. You can go look, but it's something to the effect of 30% of the money supply ever was created in the last couple of years. I mean, the number is probably even higher than that, but I'm just lowballing it. Um, So I don't see how one could accept this concept and the concept being that the money printer is going crazy at the top. And so the people closest to the spigot, the banks, the financial institutions, the ones that have hedge funds that require multiple millions to even get in the action, like you have to you already have to have multiple millions of assets to even get access to this stuff. But once you're in this rich club, you're next to the money spigot and you can take that and put it into assets. And when you're taking all this money from the spigot and they're printing money like crazy, trillions of dollars, the reason why it doesn't immediately hit the economy is because Wall Street is hoovering it up and putting it into assets. So you see the price of real estate go up. You see the price of milk go up. Used vehicles go up. You see prices go up. But the reason why it took so long, even though they've been printing like a motherfucker since 2008, is because his plan also cut checks to all of the people. So you had money going like crazy at the top and you had money flood into the system at the bottom. And so you had a massive oversupply of money. It's just the goddamn reality of the situation. And to imply that that only led to like zero point whatever of inflation is arrogance or it's intentional misdirection. I I kind of think it's the latter. Back to Wall Street. Wall Street estimated that the and the San Francisco Federal Reserve said analyzed it, said the rescue plan contributed only 0.3 percent to inflation. 0.3%. That's coming from the Fed. It's coming from the fox that's guarding the head house. And he he says it like it. He says it like that gives it authority, right? And of course, it's it's a party-wide thing because the Democrats know that uh, this shit sandwich is coming for them. But we have to live in a year where even though the bills are 10 years, they measure it for 20 years. And Imprimatur said... A trillion dollars over 20 years is saved. 
So when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary, A. B, uh, we don't want to reduce the um, uh, increase in jobs, which we're very proud of this president breaking records. Oh, yeah, and I told you they would do this, didn't I? Oh, God, I love this. God, this is part, I mean, it's kind of, in part, it's a victory lap, like I told you so, and in part, it's absolutely devastating that some dipshit in Seattle doing a podcast for 10 years could sit here and see the way this stuff's going and call this stuff year year or two in advance. So I told you before the election finished that whoever won the election was going to have incredible numbers for jobs because when you turn off every single fucking job and then you turn on every job, guess what happens? The number go up because you go from nothing to something. That was always going to happen. That's Biden's big accomplishment right there is he turned the economy back on. And the default jobs that remained are being filled. But of course, at the same time, we have more people out of the labor market than ever. It's a shit show over there. And Pelosi saying the government spending not only doesn't increase inflation, but reduces it, shows you how misguided this party is and how potentially stomp they're going to get as Americans go to buy groceries and gas. And they feel this every single time. The only saving grace they have is that you are being gaslit so hard for so long that most of you can't see the, the trees through the forest or, you know, whatever the saying is, the pube through the puss. The toll of the war is having an ever greater impact on the U.S. economy with soaring inflation and gas prices. Americans are paying more. NBC's Morgan Chesky joins us with that part of the story. Fuel, food and shelter, the biggest drivers behind inflation's highest increase in four decades. Now, inflation being the CPI, which is a manufactured number that samples different parts of the economy, but like things like energy and housing are actually a very, very small factor in the CPI. So the CPI has been kind of reformulated to reflect the economy at its different stages or whatever the government would like it to look at. But roughly speaking, if you were to calculate the CPI as it was calculated in the 80s, inflation would be double what we are currently reporting it. But since the official number is the CPI reported by the government, that's just kind of what the market goes with and what the media goes with. And even that official number, which is a lot lower than how we used to calculate the CPI, even that is still at a 40-year high. The toll of the war is having an ever greater impact on the U.S. economy with soaring inflation and gas prices. Americans are paying more. NBC's Morgan Chesky joins us with that part of the story. Fuel, food, and shelter, the biggest drivers behind inflation's highest increase in four decades. The Consumer Price Index report showing a 7.9% rise over the last year. And in Washington, the Biden administration acknowledging it may get even worse before it gets better blaming Putin's war in Ukraine as a prime contributor. The American people know how important this fight is. I think they know that as painful as the price is today, the costs are going to be higher if we do not act now to deal with this tyrant. Now, do you think that he still doesn't know how this pushes Russia into China's arms? Or do you think he might still know how that works? You know, and do you think that maybe this war is just going to be a great excuse to just turn the money printer back on? To just keep spending money like crazy, because after all, 
There's lives to save. Good afternoon, folks. Congressman Nels here. This afternoon, or maybe this evening, we'll be voting on a $1.5 trillion omnibus bill. It's 2,700 pages long. Here it is, and we've had less than 24 hours to look at it. Nancy Pelosi, she's rushing this massive spending bill because the Democrats, folks, they're going on vacation tomorrow. They need to get it done today. Politicians love these stunts, but the message is actually received. That's a massive spending bill at a time when we are in a bad, bad situation. And we could be looking at the reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar beginning to deteriorate right here with this conflict. This is the watermark in which I don't think the U.S. dollar will ever return to. It's reached its high watermark. And one of the data points that I take in for that assessment is that the Federal Reserve chairman, well, at least the stand-in chairman, he hasn't officially been elected, uh, says it's possible to have more than one reserve currency for the world and kind of even could see it happening. To have Jerome Powell say that is a fundamental land shift for a Federal Reserve chair. We do benefit from being the reserve currency for um, the main reserve currency for the world. And that really is because we have open capital accounts and the rule of law. And uh, we have inflation, you know, over a long period of time uh, under control so that the, the dollar preserve cons- you know, preserves its value. We'll see about that. And so our markets are the most liquid, and it's the place where people want to be. Over time, um, uh, the question is, if, if some want to move away from the dollar, what will be the effect on us? I don't think it's something you would feel right away. Over time, uh, they would have to create an e- e- ecosystem, economic ecosystem, whereby another currency becomes uh, uh, you know, a better a better currency for them to use. Um, you know, what we can do is we can make the dollar the most attractive currency by continuing to have the rule of law and, and open capital accounts and, and make it an attractive place for people to invest and to use in their businesses. Uh-oh, then we're screwed. <laughs> there, there wouldn't be any short-term effect of that over time, though. Um, you know, it would, it would, uh, it would. I suppose it would diminish our, our our status as the reserve currency. It's also possible to have more than one large reserve currency, and there are um, uh, there have been times when that was the case, and so it's not really clear. Yeah, well, things are about to change from how they have been since World War II. There's just no one doing it now. Once you destroy. The fungibleness of the dollar, you destroy its overall value. That's just the reality of it. Once you weaponize the dollar, it inherently loses some of its value. And um, this is going to cause a knock-on effect. And Jerome is underplaying it. The U.S. has benefited handsomely for being, from being the reserve currency of the world. It has been the greatest thing of the last 50 years that could have possibly happened to us. <laughs> I cannot overstate how having the reserve currency has led to every massive growth like the tech sector. You, you would not have the kind of funding and the VC backing and the kind of money that gets thrown around in the tech sector without the fiat printing and the reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar. It has led to such a competitive advantage for U.S. businesses as well. Uh, it's just, it's, it, there's no way to overstate the importance of it. It has defined life in the United States for the last 50 years. So the idea that this could go away is dramatic. And as inflation gets out of control 
and these things begin to shift, it opens the door for a replacement of the dollar with a central bank digital currency. And it's something they are taking seriously. And Biden just recently signed an executive order directing additional research, even though research has been going on for quite a while. <laughs> they're, they, they have been doing years of research, but now they're doing more research and they're getting serious about a central bank digital currency that's programmable. Essentially, their own cryptocurrency with a centralized database where they could turn off the ability to spend it for Russian oligarchs or they could turn off your ability to spend it on some to spend it with a company that's connected to Russia, for example. Could you comment a little bit about then the central bank digital currency? It seems like that would be something that would be helpful in situations like this. Yes. So we we issued a paper after much thought and many drafts. We issued a paper um was it late last year? I guess it was late last year, um, seeking public comment on uh, the costs and benefits of a potential central bank digital currency uh, issued by the Federal Reserve here in the United States, digital dollars. And we await, I think we gave a, a, an extended comment period, and we, we, um, we gave, and we very much look forward to reading those comments. This will be something that we invest a, a fair amount of time and expertise and uh, hiring people and things like that to try to get it right but also to understand whether the benefits actually outweigh the costs, which I think is an unanswered question both here and around the world. Nonetheless, it's our obligation to um, to move vigorously to understand the answers to, the, to that question so that we can deploy a central bank digital currency if it's appropriate. I, so would it, uh, you know, in principle, it depends on we, why people are using unbacked uh, digital currencies. If they're using them to evade, uh, you know, uh, visibility, Unbacked digital currencies is his incorrect way of describing things like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Bitcoin is backed by several factors, including the cost to make it, the utility that Bitcoin provides to the network, the digital scarcity aspect of it, and of course, the ability to essentially send an item that is like gold over a communications channel, right? Uh, you could think of the value of email from regular mail. You could say email is not backed by anything. It's not a real thing. It's not something you can hold, but you can send email back and forth instantly to people, and it became obviously valuable. That's Bitcoin. People just haven't figured that out yet. Gold that can be sent over a communications channel that we all agree is a store of value that has scarcity that is auditable, that is backed by proof of work that requires actual work, has value. It's backed by something that's actually real. Unlike the U.S. dollar, which is just printed out of thin air and deposited into banks' accounts. It's not backed by anything. That we can deploy a central bank digital currency if it's appropriate. I, so would it, uh, you know, in principle, it depends on we, why people are using unbacked uh, digital currencies. If they're using them to evade, uh, you know, uh, visibility uh, and evade the law, then for us just to have a law-abiding CBDC won't won't change that. They'll still be able to use those those currencies for that matter. The existing uh, digital currencies that that again are not backed are really vehicles for speculation. They don't they're not used in payments. They're not a store of value. They're speculation like gold. <clears throat> I love that he doesn't consider gold a store of value when that's literally the market's definition of gold. <laughs> like what world does Powell live? That's in? what they're used for. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, this is the guy that's the chair fed. <laughs> like, the fed chair, the fed chair. Like, that's the fed chair right there. <laughs> um, but he is big on uh, getting regulatory frameworks for crypto. We got to regulate crypto. That is important. Got to get that done. Chairman Powell, thank you very much for being with us here once again. Uh, as we look at the unprovoked criminal Russian invasion of Ukraine, and all of the Democrats use that as the introduction. Some of the Republicans do this unprovoked attack. We don't want cryptocurrency to let the oligarchs avoid sanctions. What if they buy land in Dubai with cryptocurrency? And of course, none of them understand that the cryptocurrency market isn't even $2 trillion in market cap, right? Uh, Bitcoin itself, I don't even know if it's reached a trillion right now because of the price drops. So it's not, it's not a market that is very liquid for whales of their size. Right. For a guy like me who wants to move a few thousand dollars in and out. Sure. Right. OK, I can do that. But yeah, right now, as we sit here, the market cap of all cryptocurrencies is one point seven trillion dollars. Bitcoin's individual market cap is seven hundred and forty billion. You see, that's not I mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, my God, that's bigger than most U.S. companies. That's bigger than countries. It's a lot of money. But it's not oligarch money that can, if they move millions of dollars around in the cryptocurrency market with any cryptocurrency, with the exception of perhaps Monero, it's going to be noticed. It's, it's unavoidable. So it's not, and not to mention that blockchains are audible. The, every transaction is in the public. So it's also not a great way to transact. But uh, I thought this was an interesting time for cryptocurrencies in general, because this gives the United States government a platform to jump on to say, well, look, to help fight Putin... And to help stabilize the world's economies, we got to get Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies under control. But make no mistake about it, my friends, that is a smokescreen. That is to just guarantee that they have full control over the financial system so that way they can weaponize dollars like we saw happen with the Canadian trucker situation. They don't want that Canadian trucker protest. They don't want to see a larger version of that anywhere in the West. They never want to see that happen and I believe when you look at the economic situation that Joe Biden and every president since uh, Bush senior has sort of set up for us in terms of printing money, putting wars on credit cards and provoking Russia. And now, thanks to the lockdowns and other economic conditions, inflation, which is totally out of control and some of the money printing and now the energy situation, I think people like myself and the middle class, who maybe have some money in savings, that's losing its value every single day. Your savings account is losing its purchasing power every single day. And I got bad news because inflation is whatever you want to buy. So if you want to buy a house, inflation ain't 7% for you, my friend. It's more like 20%, 30% for you. If you want to buy a used car, inflation is 40% for you. So don't be a fucking idiot. Think this through. Don't listen to them. Your money is burning. It's sitting in the account and its purchase power is being lost. In five years, if you have $1,000 in your account, in five years, you're going to be lucky if that thing has $500 worth of purchasing power. Middle class is ignorant to this. This is why it's the middle class. But the rich know this. That's why they buy assets. That's why they buy art. That's why they buy real estate. But I can't buy real estate. I can't go buy a Picasso. I can't go get a yacht. I can't even go get fractional land, right? I don't have that kind of money. But you know what I can do? I can buy $10 of Bitcoin every day. 
And I can sit on that Bitcoin for five to 10 years. I'm 40 years old. I got time. I can buy a little bit of Bitcoin every day. And you can too. Now, who knows if Bitcoin's actually going to be a financial escape hatch if the federal government has their way with it. But I want you to understand the value of it. Just like citizens who are victims of Putin's decisions in Russia just lost 40, 50% of value in the ruble, if they would have put that into crypto, they would, have had to, they would have had an escape hatch from that devaluation. That same devaluation is happening to you right now if you're in a Western country. It's just happening at a slower rate. You're in the pot right now, and they're turning up the heat. Right now, I want to bring in podcast host Natalie Burnell. And of course, Natalie, uh, what a wild ride, right? Bitcoin was about 34000 just on Thursday. We almost hit 45000 this morning. What's going on? Yeah. Hi, Charles. It's so great to see you. Well, what's going on here is the world is waking up to the fact that every form of money that exists right now, except Bitcoin, can and has been manipulated by political and centralized forces, especially during a crisis. And people are opting out. They're jumping ship from the traditional rails because I think they see cracks in the traditional system. They see that their money can be frozen or they can be limited to how much they access or how much it's even worth from one day to the next because of decisions that are completely out of their hands. So why is Bitcoin climbing? I think it's because we're watching two systems collide. The old financial system that's dependent on manipulation and coercion and obedience to central authorities that are engaging in war. And this new system is emerging from the decay that is based on freedom and individual rights and hope. And I think people want a form of money that can't be exploited or debased by the powers that be, Charles. And that money is Bitcoin, which has very defined rules, but no rulers. You know, and so uh, because when I, you know, all these things, I was rooting for the swift action. Uh, I thought the central bank action was phenomenal. And as I was shaking my pom-poms, I kind of thought, golly, what if they ever shut my account down? Well, over 20 $2 million was sent via Bitcoin, uh, and it seems like it's opening up a new chapter with respect to the value proposition story, right? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, what other way can you send aid to someone with no remittance fees, no delay, no counterparty risk, and frankly, no one over your shoulder asking what you're doing and why? But more importantly, I think that people are just trying to help, and they see Bitcoin as almost a form of speech to protest what's happening in Ukraine, because the truth is very few people want war. Okay, politicians can wage war because they're behind the money printer. But do the people of these countries want war? You know, the politicians are subject to none of the challenges that they, of the people that they govern. Right. And I don't think anyone wants war. They want economic freedom. They want the freedom to, you know, have a chance to make their lives better for their families. And with each of these Bitcoin donations overseas to the refugees, I think that they have the chance to do that and to escape from the oppression of a government that's engaged in conflicts with one country or another country. People just want economic opportunity. And freedom. Uh... Now, I don't recommend you send your cryptocurrency to Ukraine. That government is a shit show, and they've now announced they're using that cryptocurrency to buy weapons. Perhaps you're okay funding that. Not my not my jam. Kind of an anti-war person, I don't know if you've noticed. Sort of my whole premise, actually. The lens in which I view all of this is war bad, individual populations suffering from the decisions of their leadership bad, Putin bad, Biden bad. That's the show for you. I mean, absolutely, Russia's responsible. For every action they take, every life they take. But unfortunately, we've known that was we we've known we were leading to this since the '90s. Like we've known this is coming, right? That's what's so upsetting. And if you followed the history, none of this surprised you. Putin's invasion 
I called it the week before it happened, and everybody was so shocked. They were so shocked that this could have happened. Even, even intellectual people who follow this were shocked, simply because they haven't taken the time to familiarize themselves with the source material. So again, I'm going to recommend the top two links at unfilter.show slash 376. But I'll have a plethora of links there. I'd love to have you engage over there. Also, we have a Matrix room. So if you're a Matrix user, it's a decentralized chat platform. Search for the Unfiltered chat room and join us. There's also the Discord at unfilter.show slash Discord. And uh, that's generally where I announce if I'm going to do a live show. I'll announce it over there. I'm watching. I'm keeping track. And I'm holding them accountable. And I'll let you hear about it when I finally can convince myself to get to the microphone. But thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. And I'll see you next time on the show. Mommy needs a joint.